You know, love is a powerful, powerful force. Um, motivated by love, uh, we do some pretty crazy things. At least when you're on the outside looking in and you see someone who is motivated by love and some of the things you do, you think, man, that's, that's just crazy. That's a, why would you sacrifice that much? Why would you give yourself that much? But when you're the one who, who loves and is motivated by that love, knowing you're loved and loving, the crazy thing about uh, love is it doesn't feel like sacrifice. It feels like joy. It feels like uh, an honor and a pleasure to give yourself that way. You know, other than uh, my college tuition, as a 22, 23-year-old, the greatest, most expensive purchase I ever made was buying an engagement ring for Mandy. And she said yes, and so, you know, we're married now, um, which is pretty exciting. Um, but, you know, for me, uh, if you don't know me, I'm uh, a pretty frugal guy, and, and then I'm a Mennonite, so that works against me as well. And so I don't enjoy spending money. I know some of you, like, you love to shop and purchase things, and there's like this, this thrill. Uh, I don't, uh, me and spending money are not friends at all. Like, I hate it. And, uh, and, and yet, when I bought that uh, uh, engagement ring for Maddie, not once did I think, oh, women, <laughs> always wanting, you know, do you spend all this money on them? And not once was I begrudging in my, you know, in fact, I remember thinking, like, this is going to be the biggest purchase of my life, and I'm not spending hundreds I'm going to spend thousands. Like I'm, I, I took pride in the fact that this was the biggest purchase of my life because I was all in in that relationship. And Mandy was all in and there was just this, this amazing love and it was just a, a beautiful thing. Now, I bet you have a story of love where you kind of went outside of what you normally do, do or how you normally live and people on the outside look at you like, what, you did that? You know, you hear the guy that drives three days to see his girl for three hours and then drives three days back home and everyone on the outside is like, that's just ridiculous. But do you know who it's not ridiculous for? That guy, right? It's a sacrifice, but it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. There's this joy in that. This kind of love is called devotion, devotion. It's this affection, but it's not just a feeling, it's this loyalty, this love and you can't fake this kind of devotion. You can't fake devotion. You can't just try and like pretend to be devoted. Uh, in fact, fake devotion quickly becomes forced duty, right? You try to fake devotion, like I'm going to just fake my loyalty and fake my affection. Eventually what happens is you just start checking off the list like, well, I got to do this now. I got to do this now. And it becomes this forced duty. You know, interestingly, uh, along the way of our relationship, Mandy and I's relationship, um, you know, probably two years into our marriage, I'm like bemoaning the fact I have to help her do the dishes, right? Like, can't you just do it? Like, what happened, right? And it's like, do you have to buy Starbucks coffee? Can't you just drink water? It's free. Like, come on. Like, all of a sudden, like, I spent all this money on an engagement ring, and all of a sudden, like, what happened? Suddenly, our relationship became more about kind of duty. Like, oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. And obviously, relationship has, you know, every relationship has some form of duty, but the devotion, the uh, loyalty, the, the joy had kind of been stripped away. And I, I think our relationship with God is kind of similar. You think of your faith journey, and maybe you're, you know, in on the faith. Maybe you're kind of on the outside. You're not sure. But 
I think our journey in the faith is kind of similar to this. That along the pathway, we kind of, uh, we either have a, a relationship with God and we, you know, we, we, we're all in, we have this devotion towards him, or our connection to God is kind of more just religion. And here's the thing about duty and devotion and the difference. Duty calculates. Love demonstrates. And in religion, you start calculates, like, what does God want from me? And what's the bare minimum that I have to do? But when you have a relationship with Jesus, and here's the thing, if you're just religion, you come to you know, church, and you're like, I just want, you know, I'll try this religion out, you're going to find yourself tired, and you're going to find yourself disappointed. Because we are called to have a relationship with God, which is not just, you know, what's the bare minimum? It's like, what, when, when you understand what God has done for you, what can I give? Love simply demonstrates. Duty calculates. Duty calculates. So we're not the first people in the history of the world to kind of struggle with this in our relationship to God. Struggle with kind of like seeing God as, you know, this religion. And it's like, man, if I'm going to cut corners here and cut corners there. And, and struggling to really be devoted and loving God and demonstrating that love. Uh, there was a group of people called the, the Israelites, and 2,400 years ago, they were struggling with this very same thing. And over the next few weeks, we're going to read about some of their struggle to not just see their, their connection to God as this duty where, you know, inevitably you cut corners and you become half-hearted, but to see it as this relationship of devotion. Now, uh, this uh, we're going to read uh, through a, a prophet, uh, his little book. He writes towards the, the nation of Israel. And it's the last book in the Old Testament. Um, and uh, if you know, the, the, the Bible's broken into two main sections. The Old Testament's all the stuff leading up to Jesus, who is our, our Savior. And then the New Testament is the story of Jesus and then the, the growth of his movement, which was the church. And so uh, we're going to go through the last book in the Old Testament. He wrote one of the last uh, times. There's kind of 400 years of silence after this guy wrote about his time. Uh, there might have been some others that wrote after him, but we'll get to that maybe later. Um, but he was a prophet, and his name was Malachi. Everyone say Malachi. Malachi. Okay, you just pronounce his name wrong. But don't worry about it. He's been dead for a couple thousand years. I think he'll probably get over it. So Malachi, but if you want to call him Malachi, like I said, he doesn't care. So Malachi, Malachi, he, he was this prophet of God and he spoke. And he spoke to the people, but they were the post-exile Israelites. Now I've got to give you a little bit of history lesson so you understand the context of who these people were and why they're dealing with what they're dealing with. So you may know, maybe you don't know, but over a thousand years before Malachi, uh, God came to this guy named Abram, and he said, hey, I'm going to choose you, and I'm going to make a nation out of you. And God does, and this became known as the nation of Israel. Uh, but that nation actually grew up in slavery in Egypt. And, you know, uh, after 400 years in slavery, God raised up this man, Moses, and Moses comes to Pharaoh, who's the king of, uh, of Egypt. And uh, Moses is like, let my people go. You maybe know that story. And after a lot of arm twisting, uh, Pharaoh finally lets the people go, and this nation makes their way to the promised land, which was the land God had told Abram, hey, this is where you're going to have your nation. And so they make their way to the promised land, 
They lived there for a few years or a number of years. And then the nation asks God for a king. See, God had been their king. They'd never had a human king. And so God's like, okay, I'll give you a king. And there's King Saul and King David. You maybe heard of David, David and Goliath, David and Bathsheba, that David. And then David's son Solomon reigned Israel. But after Solomon, the nation of Israel had a civil war and they split in two. And there's the northern kingdom, which was known as Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah. And both kingdoms struggled to go beyond duty, this half-hearted duty, and they struggled to follow God. And so God sent judgment against the nation for their struggle to follow him uh, well. And uh, he first sent, you know, judgment against the northern nation because they struggled even more than the southern nation. And uh, he sent the Assyrians. They came and destroyed the northern nation. And then, uh, that was in 722 BC. And then 135 years later, God sent the Babylonian Empire to overthrow the southern kingdom, which was Judah. And around that time, there were some prophets that were prophesying. Isaiah It was around that time. And, and Jeremiah, and Jeremiah came along and said, hey, they're going to overthrow you. In the process of overthrowing them, they actually exiled a bunch of the people from the promised land, took them to Babylon. So all these Jewish people were exiled uh, in Babylon. And Jeremiah came along and said, the exile is going to last 70 years. And guess what happened 70 years later? The Persian Empire... That's good. The Persian Empire came and overthrew the Babylonian Empire. And then the Persian king's like, what are these Jews doing in Babylon? And he sent them and he allowed them to go back to the promised land, to Israel. And this is the time frame that Malachi is writing to the people. It's the post-exile. They've gone through this judgment. Their grandparents went through this judgment from God because they hadn't followed him well. And now God has you know, blessed them and given them an opportunity to come back to their homeland. But in this, the people still struggle to follow God. They still struggle to be devoted to him. And so in this, in this narrative, in this prophecy of Malachi, what comes up over and over is this idea that fake devotion quickly becomes forced duty and you start cutting corners because you're not giving yourself to God. You're just trying to cut corners and just do enough to get by. Here's how... Uh, Malachi starts his prophecy. It's, it goes this way. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. The word Malachi, it's his name, but it means messenger of God. And he was because prophets speak to the people for God. God gives them a message. They speak the word. So what's interesting, though, is this is the word of the Lord to Israel, which means this is not to you. This was not written to you. And this was not written to me. There's a specific context and they lived in a specific time and it was written to them in their context, in their time, in the things they were struggling with and in the covenant they were under, which is a different covenant than we're under and we're going to talk about that later. But what's interesting, although this was written to Israel and not to us does not mean that it's not for us. There's things that we can learn and there's some human condition that is just kind of normal as we struggle and we wrestle with some of the same things they struggled and wrestled with as it related to their connection to God. So Malachi goes on, actually God speaks, and God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, right? He's like, I have loved you. You're the nation. Remember, these are post-exile, you know, they come back. He's like, I have loved you. But you ask, how have you loved us? I bet that's a question you've asked before. We tend to ask this question when we're in a similar situation as the post-exiled Israelites were in. When things aren't necessarily going perfectly our way, when, you know, you lose your job, your marriage starts struggling, your parents' marriage starts struggling, 
and circumstances are against you, some health things, whatever it is, and suddenly we come to God and we say, God, do you even love me? Why are you allowing these hard things? And this was the nation of Israel. They're post-exile. Yes, God has brought them back, but they're still not a sovereign nation. There's still nations around them, and, and it's not the way it used to be. And they're like, God, how have you loved us? And God jumps in. He's like, Here's, I'm going to tell you how I've loved you. Remember, this is very specific to them. And this is what he says. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated and have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance in the desert jackals. If every anyone says that to you, just say, oh man, I'm really loved, right? That's what God's like, see, I love you. See what I did? Okay, what does this all mean? And then like, what's the love-hate thing with Jacob and Esau? Okay, we're gonna get to all that. First, Jacob and Esau. A little bit of context to that. You remember Abraham, he was the guy that God said, I'm gonna make a nation out of. Jacob and Esau were brothers, actually twins, and they were grandsons to Abraham. And God had said, I'm gonna make a nation out of Abraham. Well, his grandsons, Jacob and Esau, were born, and God had told Abraham that the world would be blessed through him and that this nation would be his chosen nation and the Messiah was going to come from his nation. But now there's a problem. Which nation or which person is going to be in the family line of the Messiah Jesus? Is it going to be Esau or Jacob, right? That's the question. And this, (laughs) not quite, in this situation, God chose Jacob. He had to choose one, right? The Messiah couldn't come from both family trees. And so God decided he's going to choose one, and he made a covenant, which is like a treaty or a contract, with Jacob and his descendants, which became known as the nation of Israel. Now, at that, in those days, there was a number of different kinds of contracts or treaties. There was the parity treaty, which was this, this, this agreement between two groups of, or two people that were of equal status or power. But a more co- another common treaty was uh, the vassal or the Susarentee treaty, And this was a treaty between two people of differing statuses or differing powers. This is the covenant God makes with Jacob and the covenant God makes with the nation of Israel. See, God is way bigger than any human. So they're not of equal status or power or authority. But God goes into an agreement with Jacob and with his descendants. And the agreement pretty much worked this way. It's how we think of religion. It was kind of religious. It was... You do your part, and God will do his part. You can read all about it in Deuteronomy chapter 28. There's all these things. You do your part, and God says, I'm going to do my part. I'm going to bless you, and good things are going to happen. You don't do your part, and then the covenant, the agreement, it's broken. I'm not doing my part. This is how the first covenant worked. We don't live in that covenant. I'm going to talk about that later. We're in a different covenant, but this is how the covenant worked. And so God comes along and says, hey, I've loved you because weren't these two guys brothers? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now we read that, and in English we think of love and hate in very emotional terms, right? Love is like affection, it's this feeling, uh, this desire. Hate is like disdain and disgust. I don't think when God says this, he's talking about love and hate in the way that we think of it that way. It's not that God has this like affection and desire for Jacob and he has this disdain and disgust for Esau. See, when God says, I loved and hated, these words are written in the context of covenant. What he's saying is, I chose one. I had to choose one. The Messiah came through one. I chose, loved Jacob. In fact, the other, some other prophets, I think it's Hosea, Jeremiah, they actually talk about this in marriage terms. 
And it's like marriage, when there's divorce that happens, it's like you went from love to hate because the covenant of marriage has been broken. In fact, God even, one of the prophets says, he says to, his, you know, to Jacob, to Israel, who we just hear he, he says he loves, he says, I hate you. Because he's not saying I hate you, like to disdain, disgust you. It's that you've broken the covenant. We had a covenant. Remember the old covenant was you do your part, I'll do my part. They didn't do their part, and it was broken, which means it had been split. And this is what God is saying. He said, hey, I have loved you. I chose you, and I didn't just throw you to the wolves. He goes on and says, I have turned uh, Esau's uh, land into a wasteland. He kind of works this out, and he says, Edom, which was Esau's descendants, their nation, may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins, but this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. So the question is, why is God judging the nation of Eden so much? And here's what you need to understand when you read kind of scripture, and here's what you need to understand about God. God doesn't play favorites. He's not impartial in his justice. And so Edom, you know, history shares this with us. Edom, all, all throughout history, up till that time, had always treated their relatives, the Israelites, remember J- Jacob and Esau were like brothers. Edom, the descendants of Esau, had always treated the descendants of Jacob like trash. I'll give you two examples. After uh, Israel came out of Egypt, remember they'd been slaves there? They're making their way to the promised land. They sent a, a letter to their brothers, the Edomites, and said, hey, can we travel through your land to get to our promised land? We won't take anything. We just need a pathway. And the Edomites are like, no way. And they built an army and put it there and said, we'll fight you. Here's these people that just came out of slavery. They have nothing, and they weren't willing to help their brothers. And then years later, when the Babylonians sieged the city of Jerusalem, the Edomites stood by, and after the destruction, they went in and just plundered, and they took advantage of their brothers uh, who had gone through this devastation. And here's the deal. God was like, you're going to pay for the wrong that you've done. And that's what he's talking about here. Hey, Israel, I've loved you, which means people that have treated you poorly, they're going to receive justice. But God's not impartial. Guess who else he judged? His own people, right? The Israelites, when they didn't follow him, he's like, you're going to go into exile. So God doesn't play favorites, but he's showing here, hey, Israel, I've loved you, I chose you, and those who have harmed you, I'm going to treat them justly as well. Well, here's how God shows, hey, I've loved you this way. And then the whole text changes course. And God kind of goes on the offensive. He says, the problem isn't me. The problem's actually you. Our covenant's not broken because of me. It's broken because of you. Here's how he says it. A son honors his father and a slave his master because of authority, right? Father has authority. A master has authority. And so the son and the slave, they honor those who have authority over them. And God goes on and says, if I am a father, where's the honor due me? And if I'm a master, where's the respect due me, says the Lord? You're not honoring. You're not respecting me. Well, how are they not honoring? How are they not bringing respect and honor to God? Here's what God says. He gets kind of, you know, in your religious life, you failed. Here's what he says. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Again, remember, this is not written to us. 
This was written to Israel. They lived in a different covenant. And their covenant, if you wanted to say, hey, God, thanks for some stuff or thanks for what you've done in my life, you would give a sacrifice. If you messed up and you're like, ah, I need to be forgiven, you would give a sacrifice. We don't do this anymore. We're in a different covenant. I'm going to talk about that later. But in that covenant, this was how they came to God. And, and God is saying, you're not respecting me. You're not honoring me. You're half-hearted. You're giving me trash for offerings. And then he goes on and says, try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Again, this is written to people, not us. We live in a democracy. We would do this to some of our government officials, right? Because some of us don't like him, and then the new one comes in, and we don't like that one, or we like that one. We're all over the map. But in that culture, in a monarchy, in a dictatorship, when the authority, when the king has your life in his hands... You honor them, right? You don't bring them second-class, half-hearted, you know, sacrifices. And this is what God is saying. He's like, hey, would you, your human authorities wouldn't be pleased with this. With this. It goes on, oh, that one of you would shut the doors of the temple. See, in that time, the way you met with God was at the temple. You had to go to a specific place to meet with God. And God's like, I don't like the way you're meeting Shut the churches down, right? Shut everything. I don't want, so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I uh, will accept no offering from your hands. And here's why. My name will be great. Everybody say great. This is your father, God. His name is great. My name will be great among the nations. And cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifice a blemished animal to the Lord, the person who brings second class. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared, honored, revered. That's what that word means, feared, among the nations. To sum this all up, God looks at the religious life of these post-exile Israelites and he says, you're bringing me second class. See, the Israelites had settled for, what's like the bottom line that we can bring to God? They'd settled for duty rather than devotion. And God gets upset with them and says, I'm the, I'm the God of the universe. I deserve so much more. Well, the text kind of changes direction now. And God's going to speak specifically to the religious leaders, the priests, but in essence, he's not going to say, not only is your religious life messed up, your half-hearted, your obedience, your secular life, the things that you do outside of the temple, outside of sacred, is half-hearted as well. Here's what he says to the priests who are the religious leaders. He says, you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. So God had made a covenant with Levi, who was, you know, the priests were Levites, that was the family clan. And so God says, all of the things that were blessings that I had committed to Levi, to keep his, the covenant with him, I'm, I'm going to turn your blessings to curses because you're not keeping your end. Remember, their covenant was you do your part, God's going to do his part. My covenant, God goes on, was with him, with Levi. A covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. I gave them, uh, gave life and peace to Levi because he kept his end of the bargain as well. And then he goes on and says, but this required something of Levi. This called for reverence 
And he revered me and stood in awe of my name. But he wasn't like, whoa, God is something amazing. I'm going to live how I want. He's like, oh, God is something amazing. And that changes everything about how I live. True instruction was in his mouth and nothing false. He wasn't a liar, was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and righteousness and turned many from sin. He was all in. All of his life was devoted to me. But you guys aren't. He goes on and says, So I have caused you to be despised, these Levites, to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have what? Not followed my ways, but have shown partialities in matters of the law. You've been unjust. You have the authority to judge in, in situations, and you haven't been right. Now, to sum this all up, God gets on, uh, uh, comes against the people for one thing in two areas. They're half-hearted in their religious life, and they're half-hearted in their obedience to God. See, they'd fallen for a duty which calculates, ah, this one's good enough. Ah, I'm kind of, you know, here and there I follow. But love demonstrates, and God had invited them in to a covenant where he wanted them to be all in. But they neglected to get all in. And you know, it's interesting. In the history of Israel, they could never fulfill their end of the bargain, their end of the covenant well. They kept failing and failing and failing. They couldn't do it. And you, you and I can't do it. When it comes to religion, you and I can't earn our way into God's good books. We can't work our way into pleasing him. And God knew this. And this is why the new covenant is so important and it changes everything because God said, you couldn't do it. So I'm just gonna, you know, I was doing my part and you guys weren't doing your part. So I'm just gonna do all the parts. That's what God decided. I'm just gonna do all the parts. It's all gonna be on me. See, we in the new covenant, we don't do anything to get anything from God. You can't earn his love or his kindness. But rather in the new covenant, because God has done everything, and God has done everything in the person of Jesus. He sent his own son and said, you can't keep it, Jesus will keep it perfectly, and he will be the sacrifice for your sin, a once-for-all sacrifice. That's why we don't sacrifice anymore, because God sent Jesus to be the sacrifice for us. And God said, I'm going to do everything, and I'm going to give everything. I'm going to be all in on you. And now, because I've been all in on you, the only appropriate response is for us to say, wow, I have been loved with an eternal love. And suddenly I'm not calculating what's the bare minimum God that I can give you. Suddenly I start demonstrating. I give everything to God. See, duty calculates. Love demonstrates. I'll give you a picture of this. I'll say it maybe in a couple other terms. Uh, duty calculates, love demonstrates. It's kind of like... Uh, the difference between an employee and an employer. An employee calculates, right? Even a good employee. They do their duty, but duty always calculates. Like, oh, I'm putting in extra time, I don't know, or, you know, I better get paid overtime, right? 
An owner doesn't calculate. They're invested. They're all in. They don't calculate the hours. They, it's like, I just run this. This is my thing. They're all in. They're all invested. Duty calculates. Devotion. Love. Demonstrate. It's kind of similar, maybe another way of saying it, is the difference between renting a house and owning a house. As, an, as a renter, even if you're a good renter, you might you know, do all your duty as a good renter, but it's just duty. You never, I mean, rarely would you go above and beyond, like invest in the long-term good of this house because like, I'm gonna be out in six months. But when you own something, the investment changes. It changes everything. And God has come along and said, I have done everything. I have done everything for you to be my child. You're no longer a renter and you're no longer an employee. You are now a co-heir ruler with Christ. You are an owner. You, you know, and as an owner, you don't you know, start calculating. It's like, oh, I got to do this to get in with God. You're already in with God. He's done everything through the person of Jesus. When you put your faith in him, everything has changed for you. But now we respond by joyfully giving everything. See, f- faith motivated by love. I'm talking this love. This love that we understand that God has given us everything. And this love that responds by saying, I'm willing to give everything. Faith motivated by love leads to devotion rather than simply religious duty. So how does this play out in our time, in this new covenant life, as followers of Jesus? How might this play out? Well, the Apostle Paul says, here's how it plays out this way. He says, whatever you do, religious, not religious, sacred, secular, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart. You give all of you. You do the best. You give it as working for the Lord. Be all in. In your religious life, in your life that you think isn't that religious as you leave the church and you're not reading your Bible, it's like, do it as though you're doing it for the Lord, not for human masters. And here's why. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance, inheritance means it's already yours, you just haven't got it yet. You already have been given an inheritance in Jesus. And it's from the Lord as reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. It's not to get something. But you give yourselves fully to the Lord. Surrender yourself fully to the Lord because of what he has already done for you. Faith motivated by love leads to devotion rather than religious duty, which inevitably will lead us to calculate and cut corners. So here's a couple of questions I have for you as you consider your faith journey. Um, First one is, is your faith a chore or a joy? Is your faith a chore or a joy? And obviously in a relationship with your spouse and relationship with God, it's not like this feeling all the time, but there is this underlying devotion, this, this affection, this loyalty. As we live in relationship with God rather than in a religious you know, agreement. I'll do this and God, you better give me that. Is your faith a chore or joy? Second thing, is your faith more duty or devotion? And the question I have that, you know, helps us process this, depending on how you answer these, the question is, what might that say about your motivation? If faith feels like a, jo- a chore and you feel like it's just duty, like you gotta do these things, maybe your motivation is religion trying to earn something from God, and God comes and says, I've already given it to you. And as you contemplate what God has done for you, the response then is a response of joyfully giving ourselves back to him. 
So what areas of your life maybe are you saying, God, I'm not willing to surrender that? God, I'm not willing quite to give my all in that area. Maybe you're new to faith and for you, you're kind of on the outside of faith looking in and you're like, I'm not sure if I'm willing to put myself in the hands of Christ, in the hands of God. I still want control of my life. I would encourage you to consider what your heavenly father has done for you in sending Jesus. He did everything. Would you respond by giving him you? Maybe you've followed God for a long time and, and maybe you're in a season where you know God's been tapping you on the shoulder and there's some things you've been holding back. Maybe it's time, talent, treasure. Maybe it's some other thing that, that you know God is kind of calling you and, and you're just not sure you're willing to surrender that. What do it look like for you to give God more of you? Not begrudgingly, it's like, oh, I have to because of duty. Because God has given you Everything in the person of Jesus. We're gonna close a little bit differently today. I'm gonna to close with a story and then a song, and I don't usually do songs, so that's gonna be the different part. Um, but here's the story, and it fits in so much with what we've been talking about. It's a story of Jesus. He was once at a man's house, and um, they were reclining at the table, and this woman came in with this alabaster jar of perfume. And this jar of perfume was worth a ton, and by a ton, I mean it was worth, in our economy, it would be worth about sixty dollars to $80,000. And she came to Jesus. She opened that jar and she poured it all on Jesus. This was right before his death and resurrection. And I think she was beginning to know there's something significant about Jesus. This is my Savior and Lord. Love demonstrates. But duty calculates. And there were some that were on the outside looking in. And they didn't, they didn't have this love for Jesus. They were, they, were, they were checking off the list trying to do all this stuff that God maybe wanted them to do, but they weren't all in on Christ. And they were on the outside looking in and they started calculating. They said, what a waste. But do you know who for whom it was not a waste? The woman. She poured out every drop As you consider your life and your faith journey with God, what might it look like for you to picture yourself as a jar of perfume? Are you willing to pour yourself out? Not as duty, but as a response to the love that God has shown you through the person of Jesus. And what area of your life might there still be that God is saying, I want that. I want you. I want your heart. I don't just want your duty. I want all of you. Wherever you are on that faith journey, whether you're in or not in, what would it look like for you to give God more? This song, some of the lyrics of this song uh, say, um, I do the hiding. I do the running. Sometimes I fight you, God. But it's a prayer. It says, God, I want to be one who gives you my all. And so it's written from the I perspective, so I want to encourage you just to listen. It'll be new. If you want to hum along, it's pretty simple. Um, you can do that. But just to contemplate and reflect on your life as uh, it relates to your relationship with God. And maybe this prayer of the writer of this song would become 
your prayer. Here in 
your presence, I'll bring you more and more and more. I'll bring you more and more and more. I'll bring you more and more and more. Father, so often we approach you as a God who we have to do things to earn your love. It's just things to check off the list so maybe, God, you'll give us some favor. Father, may we be so overwhelmed by what you've done in the person of Jesus. You have done everything, that you have made us your children. That those areas right now, and this land's different for each of us, but the areas right now that we're trying to hold back and not give you that we would be those who would pour out more and more and more. So, Father, give us the courage to release those things we're still holding on to. Thank you that we get to live in relationship, not religion, relationship with you. Amen. Hey, you're dismissed as you go. May you go in the blessing and the love of the Lord, your Savior. Jesus. Have a great week. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.